and during some of the toughest times, I have a little piece of paper in my wallet that I keep all the time, even to this moment, uh, of different things that I that mean to me, different sayings that mean a lot to me, uh, things that I strive for, recognizing my responsibility to give back. Reoccurring mantra I got into in college where I would just say, I'm going to break the mold. Two days after my second injury, my dad flew out to Indiana and we drove home. Went right up to my room, slept for a day, and then I woke up the next morning, I spray-painted my wall. No quitting me. I remember, you know, there is no quitting me and I won't, you know, I won't give up. The number one thing you gotta remember is your transferring energy. And whatever energy you got is the energy the viewers are going to have. You are listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson, where we talk with experts of craft about their journey and what they have intentionally done to be their best self. As we talk with them, the hope is that we uncover intentional gems that you can use in your life. Now... Let's kick it over to Brian to introduce this week's guest. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Intentional Performers Podcast. I am Brian Levinson. Excited to have you with us today for another great episode. But before we get to today's guest, I'd like to share a bit about myself. So I work as an executive coach and a mental performance coach. So my background is with companies and in the corporate world. And then I also work with sports teams and athletes. And I founded a company called Strong Skills. And at Strong Skills, our team is on a mission to change how the world thinks about soft skills. See, we believe that labeling competencies like leadership, teamwork, and communication as soft, whether it's in sport or in business, by labeling it as soft, it actually devalues and minimizes the importance of these skills. And one of the strong skills that we teach is what we call shift your mind. And the teachings come from my book, which came out last October in 2020. If you enjoyed today's conversation or any of our past guests, then I know you're going to love the book. You can head over to Amazon or anywhere books are sold to purchase. And you can even listen to the audiobook via Audible. Thanks to all of you who have already purchased. And I've really been overwhelmed by the response the book has gotten so far. I appreciate your messages, your DMs, your emails, your texts. If you've read Shift Your Mind, I'd love to hear from you. Lastly, if you enjoyed today's episode or any of our previous conversations, it would mean a ton if you went over to iTunes and wrote us a review. It really does help us expand our reach. Thanks to all of you who have already done so. And let's continue to share these intentional performers with the world. And with that in mind, if you enjoyed today's conversation, send it to a friend, send it to a family member. Shoot a text, an email, share it on social media. We want to continue to expand this podcast as we head into 2022, which is right around the corner. But now to today's guest, David Livingston is obsessed with trying to figure out how to get teams to function better. He's the managing partner at McChrystal Academy, which is part of the McChrystal Group. And David leads a team of subject matter experts, learning designers, and dynamic facilitators who develop and deliver custom learning courses and programs that leverage a variety of experiential learning methods to drive individual growth and higher performance for teams and organizations. 
As you'll quickly learn in this conversation, David thinks about things like polarity. He thinks about team cohesion. He thinks about how do you create psychological safety. David's entire lens is about the whole, the system, the environment, the experience. And he believes that teams are what truly drive performance. And this was a really cool conversation because for a lot of my education and a lot of my career, I've focused on the individual. David has really spent his education studying elite teams, whether that's in military settings or in business settings. So his lens looks at the entire container, so to speak. So we go back and forth, and I think you're going to really enjoy us riffing a bit. So without further ado, I'm so excited to present to you, David Livingston. David, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Big shout out to Seb Little for connecting us. And we had a great conversation months ago, and I'm glad we could make this happen and, and get you on the podcast. I'm so excited to chat with you because my focus for much of my career has been on individuals and trying to figure out how do you maximize potential at the individual level? How do you help people get to where they want to go? You have really taken a more organizational approach. And I think what both of us are extremely passionate about is the power of paradox, the power of polarities, uh, the tension that exists for organizations and individuals. So I'd love to start with what do you notice when you work with organizations and how does polarity come into play uh, when you're working with them? Yeah, thanks, Brenda. Um, and I'm really excited to be here and talk about the same idea as well, because I really believe that tension is almost kind of the string theory, if you will, of organizations. What I mean by that is string theory, they talk about it being the theory of everything when it comes to the physical world. And I think tension plays that same type of role in teams and organizations. And oftentimes, you know, we have this tendency to want to dispel tension, to get rid of it because it's uncomfortable. And I think, in fact, it is the exact special sauce that the best teams and organizations have is that they not only live within this tension, but they leverage it and they use it to really hone their craft to make sure that they are ready for whatever comes next. And they're okay with just living in that state of tension kind of in perpetuity. And so that's why when, you know, I started looking into to your book and certainly a big component of how we look at things at McChrystal Group is that there is such power when you can be okay living in that tension. Yeah, I became really obsessed with polarity. I just think so much of life is about and instead of or. And we often have blind spots because we're just seeing things as black and white. I had a, I talked to a general manager of an NBA team once and he said, Brian, we want to have a culture of confrontation. What's your thoughts on that? I think that that, you know, we talk about it often as um, productive conflict. And it's that idea that when you have, you know, some friction, uh, it almost kind of creates those sparks that oftentimes can create the um, fires of ingenuity, right? It allows people to push against each other and, and really kind of rise to the next level. Uh, it was funny. I was just watching the, the Netflix um, the, uh, special on the Chicago Bulls and 
uh, you know, The Last Dance. And they were talking about back in the Dream Team of 1992 and how possibly the best game that was ever played was not televised or seen by a single soul, right? It was because they were in the middle of a practice and they were pushing each other to the absolute limit. And it was, became this really fascinating uh, look at what happens when you have individuals who are willing to challenge each other blatantly to the point of even being discomfort uncomfortable with each other and and embracing that discomfort because they said no even when they got on the bus it was like dead silence because people had been so uh tense and, and hyped up on energy because they were seeing this as a true confrontation and yet also when they walked away from it they had such camaraderie because of that shared experience of tension and being able to work through that tension and push each other to be even better. And so I think that that is an absolutely uh, spot on type of viewpoint that if you want to get the best, you have to be willing to be uncomfortable and embrace that confrontation. I was working with a CEO of a company this morning. And one of the themes that came up in our conversation was that he wants to be well-liked and that he wants to be friends and build relationships with his people the downside of that is sometimes he doesn't confront them. And, and even when it's time to maybe fire or let go somebody, he really, really struggles with doing that in a, uh, not, not in a manner, but in a speed with which it's needed. Can you talk about leaders and, and how leaders deal with sitting in attention and how they manage that and what you've learned and what you've observed and noticed having worked with some pretty, pretty amazing leaders, I'm sure. Yeah. I mean, I think that that's a pretty common issue um, for a lot of folks, frankly, for me, you know, I, I'm kind of that golden retriever type of personality. I like to be well-liked uh, and it becomes a real detriment the higher you go up in an organization. Uh, because you can end up trying to, uh, you know, constantly, what I would say, prioritize the, the men over the mission, right? There's an oftentimes a saying that the military uses where it says, uh, you know, mission first, people always. And that in itself, in that small little phrase really shows the tension that has to exist there. And any time that you get that out of whack. When one of those becomes, you know, frankly, much higher than the other, you will produce lousy results. And, you know, even to the degree of like, you think, well, I always want to invest in my people. I always want to grow them. And right now we're having such an incredible uh, real environment when it comes to talent, right? Where people are more mobile than ever. They're willing and able to just leave their job. And uh, with that, tendency, I think we are seeing a greater shift toward, well, I got to keep my people happy. And that comes at a price. And that price is, is not just performance, but it's actually engagement because leaders who are unwilling to have the hard conversation are not respected. And they're not trusted because they can't trust you to say what needs to be said in that moment, including correcting them. And so I think that that willingness to have the hard conversation is absolutely vital and it's become even more important over the last say 18 months you mentioned that you like to be well liked i certainly do too i don't think either of us 
want to be called an asshole. God bless those leaders that are comfortable with that. Um, but there's a whole can of worms that comes with being an asshole, which I'm sure we can get into. What do you do? You're, you're at an organization. You're, you, you play a vital role in McChrystal Group and you all are expanding and growing and um, you know trying to do big things. How do you manage your own? You, you even said it, it's a challenge for you. How do you manage that piece of your personality that wants to be well-liked while you're still making difficult decisions and sometimes dealing with the tension that, that you mentioned earlier? You know, I, I think it comes down to having that person who's going to tell you the truth too, right? Uh, the Navy SEALs who I had a chance to study as part of my doctoral work, uh, you know, they have this basic concept that a lot of people hear about now called the swim buddy. And the idea of the swim buddy is that it's the person that goes through all of the, you know, events during Buzz Week, which is where, you know, of course, they're uh, doing kind of a selective process initially to see, you know, and, and that's where so many individuals drop out. But during that whole process, they have someone who is basically always within arm's length of them, whether they're swimming, running, doing whatever it might be, they're pushing each other. And that person is supposed to be not only the individual that supports you, but also challenges you, right? Going back to kind of what we're talking about with this tension and that that ends up being such a critical component. So for me, I have to have people around me in the organization, very specific individuals that are listening in for that weakness of mine and willing to challenge me afterward and say like, hey, like you're not, you're letting up on the gas when you actually need to be stomping down harder and challenging people, holding them accountable, because that's going to be my natural default is always to shift into that likable personality that wants to coddle people. So having that swim buddy, um, not only clearly identified, like who is that person for you, but also telling them, look out for this thing for me, right? I know this tendency of mine. This is what's going to happen. When you see these certain particular behaviors, you've got to call me out on it. And that gives them the permission to, to frankly be the jerk to you and to call out what needs to be said in the moment. That's so good. I think so often leaders forget to give their people permission to hold them accountable. And that's where you can run into yes, sir, no, sir. Yes, ma'am. No, ma'am. You, you surround yourself with yes, people. And it has to come from the leader. Like, yeah, I, I want that. And then modeling it. Right. And, and saying, Hey, here's what I did wrong. So you even give yourself feedback. I was just listening to someone talking about this. The research shows that if a leader is willing to acknowledge their own mistakes and, and actually model it, then you can embed that into the culture. You said something before, which I want to just tap on here as well. People are leaving their jobs um, as we record this in October of 2021. You also are talking about developing people. And so I'm curious for you, to, going back to that likability piece, perhaps a lot of leaders are not confronting or giving feedback or communicating how things could be done better for fear of losing their employees. How do you manage still developing their people, holding them accountable, confronting them when things aren't good enough? while also saying like, gosh, our bench isn't that deep over here. We don't have a whole lot of people that can replace this person right now. Finding talent, every uh, leader that I'm talking to is saying, gosh, we're just having a hard time finding talent. How, how are you seeing that in the work that, that you all are doing? Yeah, um, I'm actually gonna 
You know, there's a, a social scientist, Dr. Amy Edmondson. Uh, a lot of people have heard of her. She has this amazing TED talk. Uh, she did a fascinating study around nursing teams. And this was years ago, but basically what she was doing is she was looking at high-performing nursing teams and trying to understand you know, what made them so special. And her initial findings were really fascinating because what she found was that those individual the teams that were reporting the most mistakes were also the teams that had the highest performance, right? And of course, then she started digging into the data to understand like, well, how, how is that possible? How are the individuals who are messing up the most also having the greatest performance? And of course, what she found was, oh no, all the other teams were messing up just as much. They just weren't willing to talk about it, all right? And they, so then this whole idea of psychological safety really took hold and her name has kind of been attached to it. But what's really fascinating, right, is that oftentimes her data is misused because they go with this idea of, well, it's all about psychological safety. You have to make sure people feel like they're part of this thing and are allowed to speak out and talk. And she says, yes, but that's only half the equation. The other half of the equation is around accountability. You have to have high levels of both. And if you don't, if you have high levels of you know, accountability with no psychological safety, you create this kind of anxiety zone where people, you know, of course, are fearful and uh, they're making mistakes, but they're hiding those mistakes. They're not learning and growing from them. And the people around them, frankly, aren't learning either, right? And so you see mistakes that happen over and over again. But if you also have high psychological safety and no accountability, what you end up getting is a comfort zone. And there's been this kind of misconception in the workforce, I think lately, that people want to be comfortable. And I would say that that's completely wrong. Comfort is nice for a small portion of time. But if you really want to drive engagement, you need to challenge people. They don't want to be in a comfort zone. They want to be in that zone of high psychological safety that's teamed up with high accountability. That's where people are learning. That's where people are growing, who are being stretched. And I think that at the end of the day, you know, we can think about our own lives. What are those moments that are most meaningful, most exciting to think back on? It was always those moments that were oftentimes the hardest times in our life that we somehow overcame. That's what people are looking for. And that's what I think as employers, we need to be sharing out there is not come to my work because it's going to make you comfortable, but come to my work because we are going to challenge you and we are going to do great things together. And I think that's what will really uh, continue to drive a workforce that is willing to go above and beyond. That's so good. Uh, you hit on something that I want to just dive into a little deeper. You mentioned psychological safety and how people don't often hear the definition, hear what she's actually referencing. And instead they just say, Hey, make it so that everyone's safe. I think about themes. It seems like every year there's a theme. Psychological safety has been certainly a theme, grit, vulnerability, growth mindset, presence. And they usually come with best-selling books as well. Start with why. And by the way, the people that wrote those books, all brilliant. Like the ones that I just listed, it's because I've read their books and I'm fans of theirs. And when I was writing my book, uh, I had a writing coach and he wanted to call it performance mind. And the reason he wanted to call it performance mind is he said, Brian, 
just focus on one thing. If you think about those books, it's like, okay, have grit, have a growth mindset, have body language presence, have vulnerability. But if you actually talk to those people or listen to those people, they'll say, no, 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 it's deeper than just the one thing. Grit is passion and perseverance for long-term goals. Angela Duckworth would say, you know, vulnerability, Brene Brown would say, yeah, it's not just, you know, sharing what you're eating for lunch. It's actually really emotional exposure and, and being able to know when to use vulnerability. But I want to get your thoughts on this because I'm curious about what about humans forces us to kind of put things into a pretty box and want to focus on one thing compared to that polarity concept that I wrote a book about. Um, and I think a lot of people had an issue with it because they're seeing a word like arrogant or selfish and they're saying, no, those are bad words. Um, why is it that humans and teams struggle with polarity, struggle with paradox and tend to like things neat and say, oh no, psychological safety is this, grit is this, uh, vulnerability is this, when they're actually missing a lot of the nuance. Um, why is it that we operate that way? It's a great question. I think a lot of it comes down to the fact that we live in a very unpredictable, uncontrollable world where we desperately want some sort of assurance that what we're going to do next is going to produce some predictable outcome that we, you know, are under some guise of control over our lives. And so that's why I think so many people look for like, what's the simple answer, right? It's why if you go on LinkedIn, how many different articles are out there that, you know, the four ways to develop a greater leader, the 17 things to do as a parent, the nine ways to improve this thing, right? We're all looking for the formula because we desperately just want to be able to have control. I'm laughing. I'm laughing in my head because when I, when I wrote the book, we said nine mental shifts to help you thrive in preparation and performance. And the publisher loved having a number on there. I loathed it. And so where I met them was, okay, but you cannot put the in front of nine because I had like 37 shifts that I just didn't put into the book. And, and it's just interesting though. I'm no different. Like I, I love to find one word and then focus on that one word and then it can help me now. It just, it often creates blind spots because if we over-index on something, then we're under-indexing over here. And I find that typically it can be helpful in short-term bursts, but as a framework and a philosophy, those individualistic one-word answers lack nuance and can get, can get me in trouble. Like I, I tend to be high energy, passionate, a fast talker. And I know that those things can often get in the way for me if used at the wrong time and in the wrong environment, in the wrong situation. Yeah. Now, I've, and I think you're spot on because you're hitting a really important point, right? Is that when you focus on a singular idea or a singular concept, a singular capability, personality trait, whatever it might be, that may work for a particular environment and in a particular context. And what you see a lot of times, especially leaders uh, who've been a little bit successful is that they kind of are this one trick pony, right? <laughs> like they keep going back to that trick because they know it's been successful to this point. The problem is that the world we live in is so dynamic and it changes so quickly that if you are not positioned, you know, it, it's kind of like standing on one leg, right? Like it works fine until all of a sudden there's a little bit of a tremble and 
then you are not ready to have that second leg to be put down to give you that kind of a balance. And so the organizations and teams that, you know, I've seen out there that are really powerful in this complex, unpredictable environment, especially the one we've seen over the last 18 months. It's those organizations that are, are living this idea of polarity. They're living this idea of paradox because no matter which way the world shifts, they are able to kind of lean into that ability um, without necessarily, you know, having overcompensated in one place. Yeah. Trust the process, really helpful and be super agile and adaptable. And we can do both. Trusting the process could mean the way we show up, how we talk to each other. Do we sit with the tension? Like that can be part of the process. And how many times have someone used the word pivot over the last year and a half? It's like, we pivoted to hybrid. We pivoted our restaurant. Uh, God bless restaurant owners. They've had to pivot every month. It's, it's brutal for them. So, so the ability to have agility, you know, I would love to talk to you about resilience because I started with Seb actually to create like a formula for resilience and we're still playing with it, but we think it's, it's pretty good, which is it's grit plus agility multiplied by growth mindset. That to us is where the, the resilience can really occur. Grit, passion, perseverance for long-term goals, adaptability or agility, the ability to, to pivot, so to speak but you multiply grit and agility by this growth mindset, which Carol Dweck coined, which is the idea that I'm not there yet, that I still have more to learn, that I still have more to, to grow. And that is when we ultimately are able to recover from bad things or adversity. Talk about resilience. How do you all see it? How do you think about it? Um, and, and I will go back to the team aspect because I don't want to lose sight of your expertise on team, but for now, maybe think about resilience as an individual. And then I still have a bunch of questions on the team when it comes to polarity, when it comes to leadership. So I know a lot of our conversation is going to be coming back to the org and the team and the ecosystem or the container, so to speak. But, uh, what's your thoughts on resilience and how do you think about it? Yeah, uh, it's a great point. Of course, my mind immediately goes to the collective level and the team level. Um, but I think that that equation that you're laying out there is spot on because resilience at the end of the day is this ability to have complete structure and stability and yet also have a very malleable, flexible uh, you know, edge. Sometimes we talk about it as, you know, do you have your... Uh, you know, agile edge, your malleable middle and your solid core, right? Do you have your solid core beliefs and understandings of who you are, what your capabilities are, those relationships that are steady state for you? Do you have the agile edge where you're not holding on too tightly to what worked yesterday, that you're constantly growing, you're constantly learning, you're keeping your eyes up on the horizon and willing to shift and, and change? And then that malleable middle, right? Where you have those habits, those processes, those things that you do on a regular type of basis that can be shifted depending on what the environment calls for, but really in some ways connects the agile edge to that solid core. And so that's kind of the model that I oftentimes play with in my mind because I think most people, you know, they will tend toward one of those extremes, right? For me, uh, you know, I, you know, there, if you take it over like the Hogan assessment or things like that, you know, one of the values that the Hogan assessment looks at is uh, tradition. And that was my highest value, right? Because it's this idea that I 
this, you know, love family. I love predictability and structure and clarity. Um, and so I tend toward that solid core. I tend toward not being nearly as agile. And so as an individual, I have to constantly be willing to pull back to that edge and say, all right, you know, has the solid core expanded too far, right? Have I, has it enveloped things that should actually still be at that malleable middle agile edge type of area of my life that I need to be willing to change? First of all, I love that you mentioned the Hogan. It's just a really great tool um, to get information about yourself. And it's other than 360 assessments, which are usually a heavy lift, it tends to be um, just a really good place to start with people. For me, just so people know, uh, he, what, what David's talking about, there's a values piece to the Hogan. Um, my tradition was not that high, but I had high on affiliation and, and altruism. Um, those were like the two values that clearly like stood out. And it's interesting when I think about values, because I, I think for me, my personal values and my professional values are actually different. And I think sometimes people talk about values as a one size fits all. Um, how, how do you think about values? Because like altruistic, I, I see that more in my personal life than my professional life. Um, and affiliation, I mean, I'm, I'm kind of a lone wolf. I'm not at the McChrystal group. Like I, but I love being part of the Washington DC community. I care deeply about uh, community. I care deeply about being affiliated to people. And I believe that, you know, we're better when we work together. So I don't, I don't know how I answered the Hogan when I took it, but do you think of values personally and professionally as being the same or different? And once again, we will go back to resilience on the team level, I promise. But this stuff is, you can see, this is probably why I did my deep dive where I did my deep dive educationally. Um, but I want to learn about organization stuff because it's probably my biggest blind spot when I work with individuals. And even when I work with organizations is that, I don't spend a lot of time always thinking about the container and the environment. So let's go to values and then you can even go into team resilience if you want. I'll just leave it to you to, to transition us. And I, I can just sit here quietly and learn. <laughs> that sounds good, Brian. Um, so when it comes to, you know, the, the values piece, it's interesting because, uh, you know, again, if anyone's taking the Hogan, oftentimes you get the report and it's like this 30 page document. It's like a book and someone like interprets it for you. You may have a coach who kind of walks you through it. And my second and third values was power and recognition. Yeah, and I remember, yeah. yeah. And I've ever sit there and I was like, I don't want those. <laughs> it was like, you, you, you can't choose. I was like, yeah, but I don't want those ones. You know what? I just looked power is actually fourth for me. So I'm not that far off. Yeah. And so, and it made me really uncomfortable at first because I thought I was like, oh, well, how does this value? And of course, the way they define power recognition didn't make it sound as bad as it sounded initially for me. Um, but what I thought was really interesting is that the way she explained it was values is what energizes you. It doesn't mean it's the only thing you care about. It is what gets you out of bed in the morning. And so for that reason, you know, I think that it makes good sense that professional and personal values, what gets you out of bed personally versus as a, you know, professional or expert in your field or professional sports player, whatever you might be, um, those may look very different and that's okay. But what I took away from that, right. And what I really appreciated was that she helped me move past this idea of that there was some sort of a judgment on a value. 
she said, you know, these are uh, have no moral code to them, right? This is simply what excites you, what makes you feel, uh, you know, worthwhile, how you feel loved. And, and when I started looking at it that way, it started to make real sense that, you know, it, it's a critical part of who we are and recognizing that allows you to show up better both individually and at that kind of organizational level, I think. All right. So, so I'm going to keep going here because you keep sparking it. You told me a lot of your story when we, we first got together and there's theology involved, you know, wanting to explore being a pastor and that was the way you were going. Then working in an engineering firm and the human resources. And, and here you are really focused on how organizations can thrive and, and helping them. You studied the military. And the reason I bring all that up is because when I'm around my finance friends, I'm the least driven by money. But when I'm around my coaching friends, I tend to be like the most driven by money. And so it's actually a nice transition to talk about environments and, and how we think about environments. Because I find that depending on the environment, I can be quiet, I can be loud, I can be um, the one that talks the most, the one that talks the least. Um, but for you, what got you so interested and curious about teams and organizations and, and how they function and, and what, what led you to really explore this field? Yeah. My wife frequently, you know, still asks me, what, so what are you going to be when you grow up? And I still have a good answer. Um, so it's been a winding road for me to get here. Definitely. Uh, I actually did an activity back in my graduate school work where it was a coaching activity and they had us start to identify what were all the things that we liked as a kid, as a small child, you know, think about superheroes and things of that nature. And what was always interesting to me is that whenever I kind of had these little dreams as a child and, and wanted to play with toys and whatnot, it was always the team, right? Like I didn't, I didn't love Superman. I loved the X-Men. If that makes sense. Like it was something about the team composition. It was the dynamics of it. It was this idea that you were a part of something bigger than yourselves and you were working together toward this common goal. And that when you fell down, someone else was there to pick you up and vice versa. That to me was the most compelling, interesting piece that I wanted to be a part of from the very beginning. Um, and so I think that you know, through my winding road, I've seen that same theme emerge in all these aspects that when I'm happiest and at my best, it is always when I am part of that type of a team atmosphere. And I think, again, that that's a huge piece of that people who are, you know, shifting jobs and, and kind of figure out what's next, especially, you know, as the pandemic hopefully begins to subside and whatnot. Um, is to start at that place of values. You know, what, you know, what is the thing that does get you out of bed? Because if that's not aligned to where you are, you can make all the money in the world and you're still gonna be miserable. Um, and being really frank and honest with yourself about it is the first step. When you work with teams, where do you start with them? Yeah, I think to a big component, it is uh, understanding again, the dynamics, it's what makes them tick, 
right? What is the directionality that they're working toward? Uh, because we see that all the time is that you've got great people who don't have a clear picture of where they're going. And if that North Star isn't in place, uh, again, you can have great intentions, you can have great capabilities, you can have great relationships and you end up getting nowhere. And so when we're working with teams, that's really the first start is, do you have a clear common purpose? And if not, we got to start there. Once we get that in place, we can worry about the rest. This is kind of a loaded question, but what percentage of the teams and organizations that you work with do have clarity on their purpose? <laughs> Very few, I would say. I mean, the you know, or or they'll have something surficial, right? That's you know, be the best in the world at you know finance, and you're like, all right, well, that's a good start. You know, there's a directionality to that. Um, but what is oftentimes fascinating too is that the CEO or the head, you know, the business unit leader, whoever the head of the team is, they think they are convinced without a shadow of a doubt that everyone knows exactly what their common purpose is. And then you just start asking people, and it becomes incredibly illuminating how what seems so abundantly clear in one person's mind is absolutely ambiguous to everyone else. You know, uh, again, I work for the McChrystal Group and uh, specifically that's our CEO is General Stan McChrystal who ran the Joint Special Operations Command uh, you know, 2003 through 2007 and, and eventually went on to, uh, you know, lead our, our efforts in Afghanistan and whatnot. Um, but going back to his time in Iraq when he was leading the Joint Special Operations Command or JSOC, he said it was one of the fascinating things is that when he came in, he thought everyone understood what they were doing. And he started asking people like, what's our goal here? And some people said, you know, well, it's to uh, strengthen and rebuild Iraq. Other people were like, well, it's to, uh, you know, put down an insurrection. Other people thought, well, it's to, you know, fight terrorism. And what became abundantly clear was, you know, while these were all good goals, there was not a clear unity of where we're going. And so one of the very first things he did was made it abundantly clear. Our one singular mission is to defeat Al-Qaeda in Iraq. And that became the overarching prioritization for resources, for time, for how people spent their energy. And he had to nail that over and over and over again. And he said, you know, it, it didn't click into like the eighth or ninth time someone heard it. And finally, it became clear, like, this is our common purpose. And then it could really start to shape the way people interacted. You spent time with the Navy SEALs. You spent time with some of the highest ranked people in our military. I'm sure at the McChrystal Group, it has massive military influence. You're even talking about that on this call. I'm fortunate. I get to work with a lot of former military, and I find them to be inspiring, incredible people. They are tend to be disciplined. They have great attention to detail. They care about teams and there's a cohesion. So there's all these elements, their mindset, they learn how to train their mind. There are these amazing qualities that come with the military. What I'm curious about is what does the military miss on? And, and, and what do they not do well that perhaps some of the businesses that you work with do far better than the military does. And, 
And not to say that we have all the answers for what the military should do. And I, I didn't serve, so I have no clue what they should do. But what do you notice in the businesses that you work with that they may do really well that perhaps some of your military friends are like, wow, that is something that, that we really struggle with in, in our military. Yeah, it's certainly a wide brushstroke um, in that there's so many different aspects of the military. And it's always fascinating because, uh, you know, whenever we go into businesses, they want to hear what does the military do? And anytime that we talk to like the DOD or to other like federal agencies, they want to know what does business do? <laughs> it's the same with sports. It's yeah. the same with sports and business. Like if I go into a sports environment and I just talk about sports, like a lot of times we're like, we know what, we know what we're talking about when it comes to sports, bud. Um, but if I bring them a, something that Steve Jobs did, they get really geeked up. And then same thing in the business world. If I bring them, oh, this is what Steve Jobs did. No, we want to know what Greg Popovich does. And it's like, and I, it's one of the reasons for me, I've always been interested in multiple um types of industries. Cause I think you actually can learn more when you go broader. I have the book range over my shoulder. Like, I think there's just, you have less blind spots if you're learning from different types of organizations. And I asked this question also with my, uh, some of my military clients in mind that they've said to me, gosh, you know, that is something the military did really good job of training me on, but it came at the expense of this over here. Um, and for, I'll just give my perspective. Sometimes it has to do with being soft and being able to connect with people in an emotional way and being able to not just go, 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 um, but to actually take a step back. Um, and so I've heard that feedback from people that I've worked with. Um, so I was just curious if you've seen anything on the team level, organizationally speaking. Yeah. I mean, I think that that's certainly fair. I think that the military's, um, again, it's a very broad umbrella, uh, has certainly made movement in that direction. I think that, you know, the areas that really stand out in particular is uh, around creativity. Um, now, again, there are pockets of the military that are unbelievably creative, right? Innovative, coming up with new ideas. Uh, the special operations community is one of those that it is, uh, almost built into their DNA as much as the idea of structure and hierarchy and that type of a thing. Um, but I think that's certainly something that th this business world does incredibly well, because if they are creative, they die, right? Like if they're not thinking about what that creativity looks like and, and how that creativity can frankly be executed in a way that produces immediate value. Um, and so oftentimes I think even in the military, there can be a longer, um, sometimes runway between a creative new idea and the value that that idea produces. Again, not always, but certainly I would say in the traditional military branches and in, in what, you know, they oftentimes call like big army or big Navy. How important are roles for high functioning teams in the corporate world? So I think... Where a big challenge is, and, and maybe this is again kind of connected to the military, right, is that there's often a, a conflating of roles versus function. And, you know, what I mean by that is a role sometimes comes with a certain title, you know, and like, well, I have these set responsibilities. Whereas the function of you need to be able to do these types of things. Uh, so again, you know, special operations units, 
uh, you know, they oftentimes will build in redundant functionality, right? Where, yes, there's an individual who may be the the corpsman, right? Who, who is going to take care of all the wounds that take place in the middle of a battle, but they're not the only person that has that function, right? Because otherwise you would be single threaded and be in real trouble. And so obviously there are other individuals in which they build in that redundancy. And so I think there is a degree to which both corporate, you know, corporate America and the military being much more intentional about differentiating those two ideas about what is my role versus what are the functions that I play and the functions that we collectively need to be able to execute are not the same thing. It's interesting. So you got a PhD. So you did your thesis on, uh, you know, systems with the seals and, you know, you did a deep dive there. How do you think about academia and application? Uh, Because your work now is really more applied. Um, and, and how do you also make sure that you're constantly staying up to date on the latest research and how often are you bringing in your, you know, your thesis into your work, uh, just riff on that a little bit. Yeah. I once was told, you know, there's nothing more practical than a good theory and nothing more theoretical than a good practice. Um, and so I kind of like that idea and we actually, I, I had the benefit of going through the George Washington uh, university program. And, you know, one of the things that attracted me to the program was they very much said, like, we are scholarly practitioners. And so I think that that has to be a huge part of that. You know, I think academia gets a bad rap sometimes, right? Um, and sometimes well-deserved, <laughs> but, uh, you know, you have to be able to stay on the cutting edge. And what we frequently see, uh, especially in my field, you know, leader development, there are an unbelievable number of, number of charlatans out there, right? People who, you know, have a gut feel for something and then they just, you know, put together some interesting framework or something that all, you know, starts with the letter P and <laughs> rhymes or something. And then P's, they can, and, P's and C's, they're... they're yeah. You can do a lot with P's and C's. You really can. Is uh, you know, and and some of those things do have value, and I don't want to discredit all those. Um, but where I think academia gets it right is that they often see themselves as the gatekeepers to knowledge, and that's not in a way that um, is a gatekeeper that prohibits the knowledge, but rather makes sure that the purity of the knowledge stays there. Right, and in our day and age of fake news and anything you want to believe, you can get to the internet and, and find some proof of that thing that you came up with. Um, academia continues to, I would say, hold the line to say, no, like there are real standards to knowledge and we are the keepers of those standards. And so the internet can do its thing. It can Wikipedia anything. Um, but there still needs to be something where we say there is truth and this is what that truth is based on research and data. And that truth may evolve with new information. And I think that business and uh, military and others should really be leaning more into academia because I think we've, we've fallen away from the value that comes from having real practice that is data informed and data driven. Look, it's interesting. We're recording this at a time where people are, vaccinated or not vaccinated. And there's a debate that continues to 
you know, happen in our country. And so given that your background is also one that's interested in theology and, and this interest in religion, um, why go more of the science route than the religious route? And, and how do you think about religion today compared to maybe how you thought about it when you were exploring becoming a pastor? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I also, you know, it's interesting because again, we started this whole conversation around tension and there's been this kind of tension between science and, and Christianity and, and religion more in general um, for a long while. <laughs> <laughs> There's been a lot of people that were burned at the stake for it, right? Um, and I actually see that there is a, a beauty in that tension. And, you know, I, you know, continue to be a, a practicing Christian with a strong faith. And uh, it, I find it interesting that typically the more knowledge I get, the more it points to a, a divine creator. And so I don't see as science is negating that, right? I think that... Uh, improper views of God or improper views of science, you know, come into direct conflict, right? And they're, they're almost contradictory. But, you know, the, the difference is, and you kind of alluded to before, between contradiction, a paradox, uh, you know, these are different elements, right? And I think that Christianity and science sit within a paradox. They don't sit within a contradiction. And what that means is when you look at it correctly, they coexist and actually complement each other. And so, you know, I grew up in a family where my father was a science teacher from the very beginning, and he encouraged me to, to challenge my faith, which is not something most fathers will do, right? But he would say, you know, you, maybe someone shouldn't even be, be able to call themselves a Christian until they've truly doubted and then come back to the faith. I'm laughing. Uh, last night, I have a six-year-old. Well, he, he's almost six and, and a almost five-year-old. And we were talking about, we just had to submit a project for their school. We did. Like, literally, they gave the parents homework for us, not for us to do for the kids, but they wanted to know our roots. And it was actually very cool. So we did like a little slideshow and created a, a 15 to 20-minute video about our roots and like how we became us. And so my, I'm Jewish. My parents are both Jewish. My wife's mom is not Jewish. Actually, her parents were Catholic and Protestant. And that led to some challenges within the family on her side. And then my wife's dad is Jewish. And so we're trying to explain it all um, to my son. And he's like, well, do I have to be Jewish? And I'm like, no, you, you can choose whatever you want to be. And he's like, he's like, okay, I'll be Jewish. <laughs> and like, but it is interesting because I think as parents, we often want to instill in our kids X, Y, and Z. When the reality is if you model something a certain way and you give them the choice, they're often going to probably go where you want them to go. And if they don't, that's probably okay too. Like I, I it's interesting for someone whose top value is tradition. I don't know. Do you have, you have kids? I do have three. So like, how do you think about making sure that you're valuing tradition, but still giving them the space to create their own experiences? Yeah. I mean, I think that's another piece is that I think a lot of, uh, again, just from my experience, Christian parents, you know, there is that deep fear of, you know, well, what happens if, 
they walk away. You know? Same, same with, I think every religion, because the reality, if you look at the numbers, people are, they're walking away. The percentages were becoming a less religious society. So that fear is, is not unwarranted. Um, there's actually data that, that backs it up. So anyway, go on. No, I completely agree. And, you know, and, and I would say there's moments where I certainly feel that way too. Right. But again, one of the things that my dad, uh, you know, who was amazing guy, uh, you know, really helped to put into me was this idea of, you know, if, if there is a truth, if, if our belief system is the true thing, then do I have faith that you will find that truth? If I give you the freedom to explore the truth, do I think that you'll come back to that? Right. And, you know, sometimes I've heard pastors say, you know, like, why do we feel like we need to um, defend God on, on the news channels? <laughs> like he's able to defend himself, right? Like there's, I don't need to stick up for him. Right. And so there's a degree to which it's like, are we trusting and are we truly seeking truth? And if so, then we should have the faith and the confidence that your child's going to be led back to the right path. And so that's oftentimes how I think about it with my children who are, you know, 10, six and five. And so certainly in that kind of impressionable age where hopefully at the end of the day, it's what I model, right? And so my intent in that whole traditional perspective is my father was an amazing model for me. Am I modeling that same type of behavior for them day in and day out and, and praying that they forget about the times I screw it up? It's interesting because I don't think I, I, we, we don't have any idea what the heck we're doing as, as dads. At least I don't. I won't speak for you. You're probably you probably have it all figured out. But uh, there's something called self-determination theory where it suggests that people are likely um, driven at work if they are competent, if they have autonomy and if they have relatedness. And I love that theory because we have to know what the heck we're doing. If you've ever been in a job where you're incompetent, like you're not going to have a whole lot of drive. And I've been there before. Um, autonomy, the, the freedom to make decisions. And it's interesting when you were talking about people moving and, and having more autonomy and wanting more autonomy. I think a lot of people the last year and a half have woken up to, wow, like I can actually work from Florida or California or from home. Like, those possibilities didn't exist in their mind before. And then relatedness, which is the piece that you talked about earlier, which is your whole life. If you look back, you've always loved being part of something bigger than yourself. You've always liked being part of a team. So let's just break that down a little bit. What do you notice? Take the relatedness piece out. What are you noticing as far as autonomy and how organizations are thinking about autonomy, perhaps going into 2022 and, and beyond and how they could leverage that to inspire their people to be the best versions they can be. Yeah. I think a lot of organizations uh, and teams for that matter, uh, we see a pendulum swing frequently, right? Where we'll have an individual, you know, I'm just thinking about like a team leader or something who they're like, I want to empower my people. I want to give them autonomy. And so what do they do? They basically take their hands off their steering wheel and then the car crashes. Right. And they're like, ah, I'm not going to do that. Yet. And then they kind of swing the pendulum to the other side. And then it's like, well, I got to see every email and you got to copy me on everything. And, you know, you got to run the slide deck by me before we go talk to the client, you know, of course, and then that gets pretty old, pretty quick and exhausting. And then they swing it back the other way. Um, and I think, again, that's what we're seeing a lot right now is that at the beginning of the pandemic, you had a lot of organizations like, like Google and others who are like, you can work from home forever and ever. And they just like, kind of basically turned the keys loose and said like, 
great, just do what you want. And of course, what happened was they're like, oh, geez, this isn't working quite as well as we hoped. And what do they do? They came and then slammed the door shut. And you now everyone now has to report here, you're going to get your pay cut and da 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 And of course, there's this massive backlash. And I think the key that oftentimes we miss is that what people really want are is they want boundaries and then the freedom to operate within those boundaries. Now, one of the ways that we talk about it is simple rules. And when I talk, and what I mean by simple rules are uh, not principles and, and not even like the values that we're talking about, but actually clear guardrails, clear guidelines that allow you to make uh, decisions, to take decisive action in that moment that still aligns with where we're going, but it gives me the freedom and autonomy to do what I think is best based on the context that's right in front of me. And I think that the organizations who have been most successful and the teams that are functioning at a high level right now are those that have very clear, simple rules for their people. And then they have the discipline to let people figure it out within that boundary space. It's really, really good. I think you don't want to micromanage, but a leader has to lead. And it's almost when they say, oh, I just lead by example. I'm like, if you just lead by example, you're not a leader. That's the first step. You have to do that if you want to be a good leader. But leading by example, you have to be able to speak up and then be wrong and deal with the consequences of that. Like that is part of it. You have to make decisions as a leader. That's part of it. And then say, hey, that was on me. And I've been around leaders that are so collaborative that their team is wanting them to say, hey, no, you decide. We're giving you the information. Your job is to decide. And when they don't do that, they can lose a team. But it's interesting because as we're talking, there's this no, we're gonna use tension. There's like internal David and external David, right? So we've been talking about you personally and how you see things. And then you are, you're very good at then saying, hey, this is what I'm seeing externally. I also recognize that there's another system that you're a part of, which is the McChrystal Group. And so you are a organization unto yourself. And so I'm curious to learn about some of the best practices that you all do for your own business. What are some things that you do to make sure that you all are operating and humming and hawing even before you're going out and consulting to other organizations? So what are some elements of the culture at the McChrystal Group? Yeah, I think one of the the key elements, um, and it's really interesting, you know, that I actually wrote an article that, uh, you know, we self-published on LinkedIn or whatever about, you know, the day that I walked into McChrystal Group and I was like, oh, this is different. <laughs> you could just feel it in the air. And one of the pieces that I think is, is interesting because it's a process, right? And people don't think about process as defining culture, and yet it absolutely does. In fact, I would say that if you want to change your culture, you have to change your behaviors, but you also have to change your systems and processes. And if you only change one or the other, you're never going to get that cultural change that you're looking for. And so one of the processes that we used is something that we coined the, the Keystone Forum. And really what it was is something that came directly out of General McChrystal's command at JSOC. And what they were doing back in Iraq in, in 2004, 2005, was that they would get on a meeting every morning where they would share information. Now that seems really basic, right? Except the way that that meeting was constructed uh, was really radical. And what I mean by that is it was a ground up driven conversation. 
And it wasn't reporting, right? Like it wasn't like, let me tell you all the great things, boss, that we did. It was, let's have a open air conversation with unbelievable levels of transparency and the ability to have the conversation in the moment that allowed that to happen. And, you know, to give you a, a just a number of why this was so valuable, right, was that only about 150 people were required to be on that meeting every day. And it was a 90-minute meeting, seven days a week for years. At the height, again, only 150 people were required, 7,000 people would show up because it was that valuable use of their time. And so we took that, I mean, this is one of the things that we do with a lot of organizations, but we use this all the time for our company. And it used to be every week, we would take 90 minutes as an entire company every Friday, and we would do this kind of sharing of knowledge. We call it shared consciousness, allowing you know, those conversations and dynamic moments to take place. When March, 2020 hit, and basically our entire pipeline of business dried up overnight, much like a huge number of organizations out there. And we're pretty small. And so we didn't have this massive reservoir to, to wait on. We were in an existential crisis in that moment, right? And what we did was we actually ratcheted down and we started having this meeting every day, seven days a week. And that allowed us to be able to move incredibly fast. Now it was exhausting. Right. Because you know, even Saturday and Sunday mornings, we were on the net talking with our senior leaders. You know, what opportunities are we seeing? How are we going to transform the business? And it worked. Right. We were you were, in, you were in crisis mode as a business in that like that. I remember when we talked, all of your stuff was in person. You all weren't doing remote. You weren't making money doing remote work. You were doing in-person stuff. So you all were in crisis mode during that time, correct? Absolutely. I mean, before that time, 94% of our revenue was done in person. After that, we, it was 74% virtual, right? And what was really fascinating was the, you know, we collect data like everyone does as far as like, you know, were people happy with the content? Did it resonate and all the rest? Our scores actually went up like in the virtual world because we had to transform the way we were working, you know, and we had to cut away all the, the junk that was you know, not necessary and not practical. Um, but what we've been doing since then is, right, is that those seven days was exhausting. And so as we came out of crisis mode, we then ratcheted back down. And I think that that's something that people oftentimes are hesitant to do, right? And that's that malleable middle I was talking about, is that willingness to adjust and to tweak the dials as the environment changes. So that's just one of the things that we do that creates that kind of constant culture of connectivity and transparency at all levels of the organization. Two nights ago, I was asked to be on a call for sports coaches. So they were high school division one basketball coaches. And it was me and another mental performance coach. And one of the themes that came up was around the flow state. And I'm curious to get your thoughts on flow as a team. Because a lot of times flow state is thought of, and for those that don't know, Mihai Csikszentmihalyi studied the flow state, uh, found that there are elements to the flow state. T time tends to slow down. It, we tend to be calm. It tends to occur when we're actually being challenged, to your point earlier about the value of being challenged. We, it tends to occur when we're in the present moment. So there are mechanics to the flow state. 
but the basketball coaches, it's, it's interesting because they have individuals that are playing a team sport. So what does an individual need to prime themselves before they go out on the floor? And I'll use even football as an example. Like I've worked with the division one football team, 105 guys on a team. You have a kicker, uh, a linebacker, a quarterback, a safety, a running back, they have different roles and they need to be in different head spaces. So you go into a locker room, a football locker room, there might be heavy metal in one corner, rap music in another, someone praying in another, meditating in another, um, going over their plays. Like they're so different. So whether it's the SEALs or the companies you work with, what have you noticed uh, from teams that are able to get into a flow state uh, as a team, even beyond the individual's capacity. Yeah, I think one of the the key indicators, or key, I would you know maybe I would say, uh, catalysts, oftentimes into that flow state and the ability to flex into it, right? Because again, I think the flow state happens actually in the preparation phase. To your point, right? Like it's you can't not, force it. You're not like, yeah. oh, now I'm switched on to my flow state. <laughs> Exactly. Like you set the conditions. We oftentimes talk about leading like a gardener, right? And the idea is like, I, I, as the gardener can't make the plant grow. All I can do is set the conditions to allow that to happen naturally. And so one of the key pieces of it, I think is actually shared language is, are you talking in the same type of vernacular, right? Do you understand what each other mean? Because you know, what was really fascinating in, in my study, right, again, when I was looking at the Navy SEALs was that um, I interviewed guys, you know, kind of the one common denominator was that they were a Navy SEAL. Beyond that, there was nothing, right? So I interviewed officers, I interviewed enlisted guys, people who were with the teams four years and then got out, other guys who had been there for 25 years, right? Uh, guys who had been in multiple combat zones and had seen the worst of the worst and other guys who had never done any of that. What was amazing was that they, when you listen to them speak, they use the same type of language and they use the same type of intonation and the way they talked about things, no matter what kind of background they came from, their language always seemed to be united. And it was this kind of like special lingo that the brotherhood would talk about. And I think that that has a huge piece of it is that words matter. And if you want to get people into the flow state, you have to be very cognizant about creating that kind of um, homogenous language that people can really see as their own, you know, using that terminology. And again, that, that takes sometimes years to build in, but in order to get there, you have to do the hard work ahead of time of creating that opportunity for people to really start to shape because their words will shape the culture. And when you have that shaping around it, people can act differently, right? They can listen to their rap music or their heavy metal or praying or whatever else they're doing. Um, but the shared language allows them to still come back together, allows them to have that freedom and yet still also be structured and coordinated in what they do. You can hear it. I, I really would encourage people to, after the Stanley Cup or after the Super Bowl, just listen to the interviews. And are you noticing similar words being used by those players or the coaches? And you'll often hear it. It's interesting. I worked for a major league soccer team. And one of my jobs was to interview players at the combine. And one year, Clemson won 
the national championship and they had like six guys in the combine and we were interviewing them and one after the next, <laughs> they all sounded the same and, and they looked different. And by the way, they were from all over the world. And the head coach of the, at the time was like, these kids are brainwashed. They're all brainwashed. But to me, it's no, they are valuing the same thing. There's alignment and there's a philosophy that you can hear and it's impacted them and it's influenced them. And so when you're in an organization where there is a similar philosophy and, and a similar value set and there's alignment, it doesn't mean there isn't diversity, but you can hear it in the vocabulary. I remember my first job out of college was a real estate job and I was selling condos and there was one company they'd come in and the people would walk in the door and you knew exactly where they were from. They'd come in, they'd introduce themselves. They say, I'm Brian Levinson from this company. Nice to meet you. They'd look you in the eye. Like that was trained and that was modeled and that's part of their culture. And that company, by the way, um, very, very successful real estate company in a world that's not always very culturally driven. It tends to be more transactional. They, they stood out to me. I want to start to wind down by just thinking about the future a little bit. Uh, you spend a lot of time thinking about where are organizations going when it comes to developing their teams and their people. What are you noticing? What are you seeing? Where do you think we're going when it comes to organizational development? Yeah, I think it's really exciting. Um, it's an incredible time because I think we've been in a forced evolution, you know, specifically when it comes to training and development. And that goes for everyone from you know, people like me who are doing leader development and organizational development and all that stuff, all the way down to kindergarten teachers, right? And how we're thinking about learning in a new way. And oftentimes, you know, in the past, we've thought about learning as knowledge acquisition. And I want to challenge that because I think what learning truly is, is behavior change. Are people acting differently? Not just do they get more head knowledge, um, because ultimately that's what's going to be driving forward. And I think that that's what's exciting around organizational development and continuing in this field is that we are at a place now that I think recognizes not only that component of it, but also what I'd consider the holistic human, you know, and, and, you know, I think oftentimes actually, you know, about your industry, Ryan, right. When it comes to performance coaching, you know, in many ways, organizational development was kind of where the sports world was maybe 30, 40, 50 years ago, where they were starting to think about the importance of physical health, but they hadn't really started to tap into the value and the criticality of the mental well-being of athletes. I think organizations are finally waking up to the fact that if I want to get the best results, whether they're revenue or, or sales or whatever they might be, I have to have people who are coming as their whole self and willing and able to develop that self in a meaningful way. I want to just highlight what you're saying. Learning is behavioral change rather than knowledge. We're at a point with technology where anyone can get knowledge anywhere at any time. It's in, I mean, you and I grew up with encyclopedias. Um, if we were fortunate to have those in the house or in the library, I'm sure your dad being a teacher, you probably had encyclopedias. And I can remember them. Like we had like these gold encyclopedias. They were beautiful encyclopedias. Well, now we've got it. And then some in our pocket. And so there's never been more access to knowledge, but I love how you talked about, but it's not the knowledge that's going to cause us to innovate. 
it's the behavior, it's the curiosity, it's the willingness to sit in the tension, like we talked about in the beginning. That's what's going to spark a new idea. That's what's going to create change within an organization. So that is definitely going to be a, a sticking point for me. I've never heard it said that way. So um, thank you for sharing that. Uh, David, is there anything else you wanted to talk about today that we didn't get to? Is there anything else you want to highlight or make sure that the audience learns from? Uh, this has been a lot of fun just riffing with you a little bit, but is there anything else that you think we should cover? Uh, I think maybe the one thing, Brian, just because it's on top of my mind, right? And um, the situation with John Gruden, I think, you know, and the kind of continued conversation we've had around diversity, equity, and inclusion. Um, it is very positive, I'd say, that we're finally starting to see a, an absolute rejection of any form of that kind of conversation that's happening. Um, and yet we still have such a, a long way to go. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm married to uh, a Latina and, you know, that's certainly something that in some aspects she's, she's dealt with in her life and her family has. And, um, and oftentimes I don't, you know, really necessarily understand it being a old white guy, um, you know, and just not having that perspective of, you know, kind of the privilege that I get to have. And, and I think that one of the things that has been really, again, interesting to see where organizations continue to move is not only a recognition of diversity, right? Because that is table stakes, right? Um, and that's actually kind of the easy problem to solve in, in that equation, if you will, because the diversity component of it is, um, you know, simply having the right people on the bus, but really moving much more into this idea of how are we creating this opportunity for inclusion, for their voice to be heard and to be respected and to be um, seen as valuable. And so I think that, you know, going back to that holistic human part of it, until we get that right, we, we're always going to miss out on the true potential. And I'm thrilled to see organizations like the NFL and the NBA and, and a number of other organizations that are out there that are finally willing to make a very direct and blunt statement on that. Um, and I know something that obviously you, you're passionate about, I'm passionate about, um, because it is ultimately where we need to go as a society. And so I thought I just want to bring that up because I think it ties so well into this is that until we're willing to have those hard conversations and really move the ball and embrace the tension that may come with that, we can't get us to where we need to be as a society and as a people. It's interesting. So when we were forming our group, which is called Strong Skills, we went over like, what are the competencies that are most essential and most important? And this is prior to the pandemic, prior to the George Floyd uh, murder. And we, you know, put out like everything that you could ever think of. And we settled on 12 competencies that we thought were most important. And bias and belonging was one of those 12 competencies. And, and that's what we termed it because a, we all have our own biases. Um, and like part of the John Gruden thing for me is also, I hope everyone's also looking inward and, and looking at themselves and saying, Hey, I probably sent an email that I shouldn't have sent at some point in my career. Hopefully I didn't use the language that he did. Um, but I, I, you know, I'm an imperfect human too. Um, and I have my own biases that I need to learn about myself. And then two, belonging, 
um, like if we're going to create elite teams, they better be spaces where people feel like they belong. And there's all kinds of ways that we can help people belong. And so a lot of the work that I've been doing with strong skills, I'll co-facilitate with Seb or I'll co-facilitate with a woman named Grace, where I am the white male uh, with privilege that is doing the facilitation um, with a co-facilitator. I think it's not enough to just sit back and listen. I think we have to also be willing to share when we are screwing up and when we can do better, because this has no, this is not like, oh, you're now not racist or now you're now not sexist or you're now not homophobic. Like we all have that inside of us. And to think that you don't, I think is ignorant. We need to create a relationship with these things. And to your point, to create a relationship with that stuff, it's going to be messy and it's going to be uncomfortable. And trust me, like I've done a lot of work in that space. It is draining. And, and yet I think the juice is worth the squeeze. I know the juice is worth the squeeze. So I'm glad you brought that up, you know, to give a little more background on myself. I'm not sure if how many people know this that are listening. We've done 250 plus episodes. I majored in sociology and I minored in African-American studies in college. And for me, when I was graduating from undergrad, that is the thing that I was most passionate about. And I get passionate about it right now as we're talking, because we just have so much more room to grow, but I am optimistic. And I, I could hear the optimism in your voice, because as long as we continue to realize that we all have biases and that we need to work on creating organizational belonging and think deeply about what that looks like for every single organization. And it's not just about checking boxes. It's about valuing diversity and understanding how that can make us perform better. It can make us live better lives. And I could go on and on on a soapbox, but I'm just going to, I'm going to let it go there because it is, it is absolutely something we need to get, do better. And my concern with John Gruden is that people are just quick to to label him and to name him. But here's the reality. You have people in your life that say that same stuff. And if you think you don't, you're lying to yourself. And so how do we address it? How do we continue to have more conversations about it? Like for me, he's going to go away and he's going to be gone for a while now. And you're not going to hear from him and they're going to shut him down. And, and to me, it's like, no, this is an opportunity to learn. This is an opportunity to, to grow. And we need to figure that out too, as a society. Um, and so, yeah, I, 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 that's the end of this conversation, but uh, maybe it's the beginning of a conversation that we'll continue to have. And hopefully our listeners can continue to have with themselves and with people in their life that they care deeply about, because we need to continue to do better as a society, especially in this country and what this country stands for and our traditions and our values and some of our traditions and values that might need to be tweaked a little bit. And, and we can still have traditions and we can still celebrate Christmas and we can still celebrate July 4th, hopefully. And, and we can still do these things that I know you probably value while still having empathy for those that might struggle with with some of those traditions. David, where can people find your work? Where where are you most active? I think LinkedIn is a place where you like to play. You mentioned it earlier. If people want to follow you on social media, where can they do that? If they want to learn more about the McChrystal Group and hire you guys to come in and make their organizations thrive, uh, where can they do that as well? Yep. Uh, so completely agree, Brian. Thanks for letting us talk that at the end. Uh, again, uh, LinkedIn, so David Livingston, uh, and certainly crystalgroup.com is where our website is and would love to have a conversation with anyone. So please reach out and connect. 
Thanks, David. I'm on LinkedIn at Brian Levinson as well. Twitter's the other place I love to play at Brian Levinson. And you can listen to all these conversations at strongskills.co slash podcast, including Sebastian Little, Seb Little. He came on the podcast as well. And he's just a remarkable young man. I call him a young man because uh, you know, he, he is, he's a young, he's a young man, but certainly wise, uh, and an amazing learner. So David, thanks for coming on the podcast. Looking forward to meeting you in person at some point, breaking bread and learning more about you and, and all the wisdom that you've, uh, accrued over the years. Thanks for coming on. Thank you. Thank you for listening to intentional performers with Brian Levinson. Here is this week's episode gem. And I think that the organizations who have been most successful and the teams that are functioning at a high level right now are those that have very clear, simple rules for their people. And then they have the discipline to let people figure it out within that boundary space.